Hello. Uh, my name is Jamel Bowie. I'm Slate's chief political correspondent and a political analyst for CBS News. And on behalf of the Texas Tribune, I am thrilled to welcome you to the seventh annual Texas Tribune Festival and to this panel on Trump and the resistance. Um, we have a terrific lineup of panelists, as you can see, as, I sh as I'm sure you all know. Uh, but first, we need to introduce them real quick. To my immediate left is Cecile Richards. Um, I feel like my next two sentences are totally superfluous. <laughs> Uh, but if you don't know, uh, Cecile is president of the Planned Parenthood Foundation, Federation of America and the Planned Parenthood Action Fund. Uh, she's been a tireless fighter for reproductive rights. And in 2011, she led uh, the national fight to save federal funding for Planned Parenthood. So, <laughs> Next to Cecile is Chrysanta Duran. Uh, she is the speaker of the Colorado House of Representatives. She has represented... She has represented her district in central Denver since 2010. Uh, she was majority leader for the 2015 and 2016 sessions and was elected speaker in 2016 as well. That same year, uh, just going gangbusters in 2016, uh, Chrysanta was a recipient of Emily's List Rising Star Award. <laughs> Next, we have DeRay McKesson. Exciting. Um, DeRay was on the ground in Ferguson, Missouri when it erupted in protest over the death of Michael Brown. Since then, he has been at protests around the country uh, protesting police violence. And in 2015, he joined other activists and advocates in founding Campaign Zero, a really remarkable effort to end uh, police violence. And we have Ezra Levin. <laughs> Ezra is co-founder and executive director of the Indivisible Project and... <laughs> Before Indivisible, uh, he worked as associate director of federal policy for Prosperity Now, and he also served as deputy policy director for Congressman Lloyd Doggett. So, a couple quick notes. This panel will last about 60 minutes. It will include a 15 to 20 minute Q&A at the end. Um, we're gonna do Q&A a little differently this time around. No one's gonna come to a microphone. Instead, you will submit your questions to the Texas Tribune and I will get your questions and read them to the panel. To submit your questions, you can either tweet with the hashtag AskTrib, A-S-K-T-R-I-B, or you can text AskTrib to 512-549-8450. And I'll repeat that, text AskTrib to 512-549-8450. We'll get the questions and then I'll sort through them and uh, pose them to our panelists. So let's just jump into this because panels always go much faster than you think they do. Uh, <laughs> Cecile, I think we all know what the resistance to the Trump administration is, what that means. And so I'm interested in kind of going beyond the surface level to talk a little bit about the term itself. Um, when we say resist, are we simply speaking about working to prevent the worst the Trump administration can do, or are we also talking about advancing a positive agenda? Um, does the word resist sort of obscure maybe some of the work that's actually happening? Yeah, thanks, Jamel, and so great to be on a panel of folks who are, I think, not only resisting, but persisting. And was one of my favorite um, thoughts is that it's not just we're going to fight back, but we're going we're gonna to move forward. And I know for us at Planned Parenthood and the Planned Parenthood Action Fund, 
uh, and I'm sure that others have had the same experience. We gained more than a million new supporters just, just right after the election. And so the whole idea now is not to simply, again, fight back on the worst things, like the Graham-Cassidy bill, and anyone who thinks this thing is dead, it's not dead, so you've got to call your member of the United States Senate, even if it's Ted Cruz, you've got to call him. Um, but I think the idea is to, to use this, as I know folks have described it as sort of a movement moment. I feel like there's never been a better opportunity as organizers to build uh, what is a much longer haul fight back for the things that we believe in. And one of the things that I also think is exciting and why being on this panel is really exciting is that folks are coming into these movements now and I think rejoining or starting new things with a much broader sense of what it means to be part of a, part of a uh, progressive movement. And because we know at Planned Parenthood that even though we're fighting you know, to protect access to reproductive health care and reproductive rights, we're also proud to stand with the dreamers. We're, we're proud to stand uh, on racial justice. We're proud to stand for voting rights because all of these issues affect our patients. They affect our staff. They affect our families. And I've, that to me has been one of the better things, although we have a long way to go, um, about what the movement I've seen since the election of 45. I'd like to pose a question to the rest of the panelists. Resistance, is it, is, does it include positive action of a forward-moving agenda? I think it absolutely can um, have a forward-moving agenda. I think one of the key issues is, is it is more important than ever for people to be involved with the political process. And it's because of the work of people calling their senators, their congresspeople about health care, about DACA, about so many of the issues that are under attack now. That is what we are going to need to make sure that we keep on going forward into the right direction. Um, but it happens not just with communication with elected officials, it also has to happen at the ballot box. In 2018 and 2020, we have incredibly important elections. And so if we can continue to make sure that momentum goes in the right direction, I think that we can make sure that we have the right people in office. You know, it feels like to me for so long in this country when it comes to racism, sexism, casting people out because they are different than what we perceive ourselves to be, that we are seeing some of the things that are being said and done in a very overt way. And in such an overt way, it's one of the first times in my lifetime that we have seen some of the things that are happening. But in all of the darkness of the conversations and the actions, I think the light is making sure that we are coming up with a new path forward to address those issues head on and that we are supporting leaders that are willing to address those issues head on. I'd say three things. One is that we know that freedom is not only the absence of oppression, but the presence of justice and joy. That like just getting rid of the bad stuff, just getting rid of the bad stuff doesn't actually just make you free automatically. That we actually have to build a, free, a future proactively. That when Trump says make America great again, that that ask is about a recall and remembrance. We have lived in a world before where white people have controlled everything and terrorized people. That's not a hard world to imagine because we've had that before. But a world of equity and justice is a world that we don't know, right? Like that's a world that we have not ever experienced. So our task is about deep imagination, that that has to be a core part of our work. That when we tear down all the bad things that we don't want somebody, somebody on our side has to be there to build up things. And the last thing I'll say is that it's been interesting in this past year to see people so proactively uh, talk about the beauty of protests, because I remember when we were in the street in 2014, people did not think the protesters were amazing people. Uh, and I was at this small meeting with Holder, and Holder was like, DeRay, you know, the protesters are out there. And I'm like, where were you at in 2014? Talking about how beautiful the protests were. But it's been interesting because now that Trump has implicated way more than marginalized people, right? Like so many more people are implicated in this moment. There are people who believe that the history of injustice in this country began with the Muslim ban. And that is wild to us, right? <laughs> that like this country has a deep history of injustice. And part of the work of resistance is also remembering that this is deeper than this moment. That Trump is, he is not the originator of this. He's just like the embodiment of it in this moment. So we fight him, but we fight an ideology that's bigger than him. Can y'all hear me? Yeah. yeah. So there's something really unfair, both having to follow DeRay's comments and his, and his fancy sock game, uh, neither slack. of which I can, just slack socks. can slack. be with. But so I, I would just reiterate a lot of what's already been said. Uh, one thing, you know, we, we came out with a Google Doc nine months ago, and that's all we thought it was going to be. 
what we've seen from the resistance is a ton of people who have woken up. They have seen that there is injustice in this country. Imagine that. Uh, but we need to recognize for these folks who are brand new to this resistance that the resistance isn't nine months old. The resistance, as Ray is saying, has been going on for years or decades, and part of the responsibility of folks who are newly engaged in this activism is to work with those groups who have been fighting communities across the country to actually resist, yes, this new attack on not just progressive values, but basic tenets of American democracy. Separate to, to your specific question, can there be some kind of proactive agenda you know, one, one thing that we wrote in the guide is, look, there's a hard truth. We don't have the House, the Senate, or the presidency. We don't have agenda-setting power right now. What we have is the power to respond. Now, that power is not the only power we're ever going to have. There needs to be somebody out there that's building the bold progressive vision for the future. So when we do tear down all this negative stuff that's out there and have an opportunity to build, we know what we're building. So absolutely, that's got to be a part of it. But we have to recognize that 32 million Americans are going to lose their health insurance if Graham Cassidy gets passed next week. And that is the urgent threat right now that we need to respond to. So sort of a, a, around that issue, so the kind of direct protests that Indivisible for example, uh, does, is very effective at challenging a piece of, a concrete piece of legislation like Graham Cassidy. Um, uh, There's a lot of great work done against the Better Care Reconciliation Act over the summer. But the Trump administration isn't just legislation coming out of Congress, it's a whole uh, swath of things. It's executive orders, it's administrative stuff. So what, and this is a question for you, Ezra, um, what, what does one do, how does one resist that? The, the aspects of the Trump administration, of the Trump agenda, which actually are kind of insulated from popular protest. Yeah, so I would say the Trump administration's agenda isn't even just the Trump administration's agenda. Right. It, it, it comes out of a long line of GOP push priorities that have culminated in this overall assault. So it exists in the legislature. That's not Trump who's pushing through Graham Cassidy, to be clear. That is members of Congress. And Trump's agenda largely depends on not Trump, but other elected officials. So there is a question... How do we resist in Congress? How do we resist at the state and local level? So there are some administrative actions through HUD, through HHS, through any of the federal agencies that, you know, bottom line, as a constituent, you don't have much power to resist that specific action. The fact of the matter is Trump doesn't care what you think. But your independent elected officials do care, whether they're GOP or libertarian or democratic, in the state house, in the Senate. In the, uh, in the governorships, they do respond to you because they have to get your votes for re-election. So I think the question when Trump's administration acts unilaterally to assault us is, where is our leverage? How can we resist this? And sometimes it's through Congress, sometimes it's through the State House, sometimes it's uh, through the governorship, sometimes it's through corporate pressure. There are a lot of ways to resist, uh, resist. I think the question isn't where that attack is coming from, it's what you can do as a constituent with your power. Right. I think, yeah, I'd like to love to hear you in this because I feel like this is a particular problem for fights against police violence, which is um, both diffuse and it's not, it's not always clear that there's a direct you know, line of accountability. Yeah, I would say, like I said before, that Trump is not the, he's not the producer, he's, a, he's not the product, he's, a, he's not the producer, he's the product, right? That like, this is an ideology that's much bigger than him in this moment. And what's sort of interesting about how we fight is that in organizing, we often organize around what I call loud trauma. So like broken bodies, we organize around broken bodies. We organize around the stuff that is the biggest, but the quiet trauma actually has a huge impact on people's lives. So what does it mean all these sort of mid-level judges that Trump is appointing across the country that'll be there for the next 50 years or like a real nightmare or DeVos is clearing out the entire backlog of civil rights violations. That is a nightmare for people all across the country. And the police, you know, we, we met with President Obama twice and the thing about the police is that there are 18,000 police departments. So at the DOJ, they can do some stuff around money, but most of the changes will happen at the local level, which does create like a different challenge around organizing. And part of the work is understanding that protest is not the answer, but protest creates space for the answer. And what the Indivisible's done, what so many groups have done, is sort of pushed and opened up people to think about the issues deeper. So then they go in their neighborhoods and they're like, okay, I can do this, I can do this. Like people don't realize that like in 19 cities across the country, it's more like more likely to be killed by a police officer than a private citizen. That is wild. Or like, you ask people what a felony is, and most people think that felonies are like, everybody blew up a building, killed 50 people. Like, that is like what felons are to people. And in Virginia, if you steal something, theft over $200 is a felony, and you lose your right to vote permanently. 
That is a wild thing. In Chicago, it's theft over $300, right? So how do we help people understand that there's so much of the, what I call quiet trauma happening at the local and state level, and even the federal level, that they can actually fight back against immediately? You, is there a way to connect people who are, um, they're, they're getting into activism because of Trump, to begin to connect them to these broader things? Because I, I, still, think, I still see, just from my perspective, um, uh, people recognizing, they, they can see the direct kind of threat of Trump, but all this, all this stuff, this quiet trauma is a, a little obscured to their vision. Yeah, I think that I will say that I think that what has not, what the organizing community has not done well in the past two, three years is sort of meet the interest. So there's way more interest to do whatever than there's ever been. And like the organizing infrastructure to absorb that interest, I think like hasn't materialized in the way that people want. So I think everybody's sort of trying to figure out how to do that. I will say that people often forget that like we all started as like random people who believed in a better world, right? They made a Google Doc. I was sitting on my couch. Like, you know, we all were like just regular people. And people have this idea that we got here by some like a Harry Tubman tapped all of us and was like, <laughs> that, that didn't happen. Yeah, that uh, didn't happen. You know, yeah. it was like people sitting down being like, I think the police union contract, like the organizers in Austin, they're like, I think this is wrong. Let me do something. And they do something and like it doesn't work and it does work and it does work and it does work. Like that's how all good organizing actually begins. And people don't see that enough. Can I add, so there's something magical that happens when you get dozens or hundreds or thousands of people together to focus on their member of Congress or one immediate injustice, and it's that pretty soon they start thinking, well, wait, why don't I focus on city council, or why don't I focus on state ledge, or why don't I get involved in this other community activism that's out there? We've seen this, I mean, in Indivisible Austin, it's an incredibly strong group, and a side group uh, spun off in order to focus on the state ledge because they were focused on their members of Congress, but they saw they could have impact over here. So I think if there is a, a, a magical tool that we have, it is getting people in person together in a room to figure out how to make the world a better place, like Dre said. Although, I, just to tee off that, I think there's the one thing that we've got to I think about as organizers is we're not going to, a lot of things we're not going to win, so we've got to claim victories when we have it. And like for people to begin to kind of get that muscle memory of like when you fight back, you may not win immediately, but eventually maybe justice comes, or a little bit of justice. And I think there's no better example than what happened here. Uh, you say, like, getting, uh, you know, hundreds of people in a room. Well, getting thousands of people into a state capitol and taking over the state capitol, as folks did during Wendy Davis's filibuster, <laughs> is a huge thing. And that, and the here's the thing to me, the organizing lesson and all that, is, like, we never had the votes. There was absolutely no way. It didn't matter how long people stayed. People stayed till 2 and 3 in the morning just to try to testify, right? And they never gave up. And even though Wendy won the filibuster, then they went back and, but here's what happened, is people never quit. And so folks in Texas, even though they passed these horrible bills, uh, women started telling their stories and doctors started telling their stories. And then frankly, the Texas Tribune started telling these stories. And all of this kept going and they documented the harm to women. And two to three years later, we overturned these bills in the Supreme Court of the United States of America. That's what persistence to me is. It's not just resistance. It's basically never, never giving up. Uh, and I think it, that's how we win. I would add to that that I think there's great opportunity in state legislatures and at the city council level across the country right now. In Colorado, we've been able to um, be quite productive. We actually had a package of bills um, that's been focused on building trust between law enforcement and communities of color. And I think that there are ways to thread the needle to be able to get diverse stakeholders to be able to support legislation. And so the outcome of that is that um, chokeholds are banned in most circumstances. We've also done things so that there's uh, live videotape of when somebody is being interrogated in, in most situations. And so we're really focusing on how can we bring people together to make sure that there is the right kind of change. But we also have to think of what is the lens that different legislators and people in positions of power look through. Um, you know, right now in Colorado, there's been a focus on can local law enforcement, can their budget actually be able to sustain the cost that it would need to enforce federal immigration law? Absolutely not. Are there other ways that we can think about arguments that will bring different people from different backgrounds to the table to be able to advance so many of the issues that uh, the people of our state and our country care about and make sure that everybody is looking through a lens of fairness? So one question, and I have this is for you, uh, Chrysanta, because A, because you're a lawmaker, um, and B, because I think it's just kind of been a little bit in the background, and it, it involves Congress, but I think it's relevant in general, and that is when uh, President Trump 
uh, revoked or said he would revoke the dream, uh, DACA, not the DREAM Act, but said he would revoke DACA, uh, immediately congressional Democrats began looking for some sort of solution, some way to cut a deal with Trump. And they cut sort of a subordinate deal about the budget and about uh, disaster funding, but there's also the prospect of a deal, uh, a permanent solution on DACA. And one interesting thing since then has been that President Trump's approval rating has gone up. Um, it's jumped up a couple points. And there's a you know, you can pretty good pick case to make that the public spectacle of Trump working with Democrats to do something constructively helped him out. Um, so my question is, when do, do Democrats, do people who identify with the resistance, do they take the opportunity to work with the administration if an opportunity presents itself to accomplish something constructive, knowing that there's a chance it may actually make the longer-term goal of kind of getting beyond Trump a little more difficult. Look, I think we have to do what is right. And um, I had the great honor of carrying the Bill Colorado asset so that undocumented students would be able to get in-state tuition in Colorado. It was the seventh time that the bill had been um, introduced and was finally passed. Um, but what it comes down to is this, is that when we see someone like Donald Trump making attacks on the community, whether it be um, rescinding DACA or whether it be um, pardoning Joe Arpaio, somebody who is known for racial profiling, um, there is no doubt that we need to be able to respond to those. But one of the great errors, I think, of the Republican Party was during the Obama administration when year after year after year, they were the party of no. And no matter what President Obama did, no matter what um, he was trying to accomplish for the American people, they always attacked it, attacked it and they went after it. The Affordable Care Act is a perfect example of that. I mean, that was based in many parts um, on a, Repu a Republican-based model. And so when there are opportunities to do good, I think that we have to find those opportunities and be able to make sure that we are driving policy that has a good outcome from all people. Um, but that said, even if the Republicans are able to actually get it together and uh, do something on immigration reform, or DACA, there have been so many issues that people just feel like they have been under attack. And, and in all of this, um, we also always have to be focused on working people in this country. You know, there are too many communities that have been left behind, that have never bounced back after we have had a globalized economy. And when we are fighting for equity, when it comes to race and sexism and, and all these other issues, we can never forget that the road to the White House, the road to different leadership positions will go right through middle-income families. And are we doing everything in our power to make sure that people have tools to succeed, to be able to provide for themselves and for their families? That is a question we should always be asking. Uh, Duray, do you have a take on this? Yeah, the do you meet with Trump question is like, a, is like a real question, right? Because a part of it is like, do you have to tell your bully to stop bullying you? Like, is that your job to sit down with the bully and be like, don't hit me anymore? It's like, somebody should probably tell the bully, doesn't need to be you, right? There is something though about if we can win because we are trying to change real people's lives in a beneficial way that like we should do that. I think about this moment like I think about the Hillary campaign is that it's a failure right now of having somebody on the left who's just like the consistent voice and the consistent response because he really cares about how he looks in public. Like that Steph Curry tweet this morning, if any of you saw, like his ego is so fragile and there's not really a response from the left that's like a consistent sort of voice. It's not the DNC right now. It's nobody else in the party. I guess it's Maxine Waters. She's holding it down for like all the black people. Um, but I think that... I think that that is a real need is that so you see Schumer and Pelosi go in the room and then he sort of plays them the next day and there's not like one person who's like holding down sort of the message and you know Obama's writing the book so you know he's not doing it and I think that that is like a real you think about with the Hillary campaign it was sort of the same thing it's like we know Killer Mike was out there for Bernie people didn't even know who Killer Mike was you know Katrina Pearson she was out there for Trump I had never seen Katrina Pearson before in my life it's like who was delivering Hillary's message eh, I don't really know and like I supported Hillary in the end like you know but it was a question of like who's honing the message. And I think that the right has mastered the message. It's like an awful message. It's not about people's lives. Like it's bad. But they have like nailed it in. And then we're like, you know, we just want health care. And it's like, what's the other message, right? Like yeah. how do we like make that deeper? Yeah. So yeah, I'd like to talk about, talk about this deal specifically that was cut earlier this month. When, so when we wrote The Indivisible Guide, uh, I remember the week that was uh, – when it happened, we decided we really just need to do this. 
in the news, there was talk from a, a Trump flackey, this is back in November, a Trump flackey was talking about uh, the Japanese internment camps in a positive light as an example of a model for policy. And in the same week, we heard Democratic leadership talking about how we needed to cut a deal on infrastructure. And the idea that we could wind up in a world where we have internment camps, but we got a few roads built, was atrocious to us and scary, that we needed Democrats to stand up for progressive values, that that was part of the answer for 2017. This is why it was called indivisible, the idea that you might be a tax uh, uh, advocate, you might be a reproductive rights advocate, an immigrant rights advocate, a racial justice advocate, but if you wait your turn to stand up for your issue, you will wait your turn to lose. Our only hope, our only hope is if we stand together. And so what we saw in this deal two weeks ago was Democrats heading into September with a pretty strong hand. There were several must-pass bills, including a debt ceiling that needed to be raised by the end of this month, a short-term budget that needed to be raised by the end of this month, and then Trump did something really dumb and evil. He attacked 800,000 of the best that America has to offer by saying that he was gonna end the DACA program. And a lot of advocates thought, hey, we've got tools to respond to this. We have must-pass legislation that they need Democrats vote for. The next day, Democratic leadership went into the Oval Office, cut a deal with a white supremacist that left behind 800,000 dreamers, and cleared the September calendar. If you're wondering why we are discussing the zombie Trump care bill right now, it is because of that deal. So when we talk about the importance of solidarity or standing indivisible, a lot of people think, oh, this is like the touchy-feely, everybody stand together kind of uh, uh, rainbows and sunshine approach. That's, that's part of it. You gotta stand up for the most vulnerable communities, but that's not all of it. It is a steely-eyed strategy that if I don't stand up for you, I'm gonna lose, and that's what we're witnessing right now. So when you talk about cutting deals with Trump, hey, I'm all for the butterflies and rainbows deal if it's on the table, if it's all good stuff, but we gotta stand for good policy. And if cutting a deal with Trump winds up leaving 800,000 people behind or endangering healthcare for 32 million Americans, no thank you. We're not gonna take those kind of deals. So, I mean, we had a little bit of our own experience um, at Planned Parenthood when, you know, just as an example, I mean, I, I don't think this is, maybe he is the, maybe he likes to make deals, but I actually don't think, I think most of the stuff, uh, I think to the points people were making is actually happening in Congress and is happening in agencies where we have no opportunity, yeah. right? And that's, I think to your point earlier, it's really important because some of the most uh, nefarious things are happening where we don't get to have a vote, where it's, it's you know, so I, I look at um, the Department of Health and Human Services, uh, Tom Price, who, when he's not f flying on a private jet from Washington, D.C. to Philadelphia, is actually who, who busy. Among us? Did you hear about this? Yeah, yeah, no. yeah. Who among us doesn't take private jets to, no. yeah. to Philly? Uh, so, uh, I mean, literally, they are, they are putting the sort of gears in motion to execute a domestic gag order in this country, meaning that anyone who receives national family planning dollars can no longer advise women of their right to an abortion, refer them to an abortion provider, give them basic healthcare information that is legal in America. That's the kind of thing that I'm worried about, is that, it, you know, we're, we're following Donald Trump and his crazy tweets and Twitter, and in the meanwhile, they are unraveling healthcare and rights for millions of, of folks. And that's just, I feel like it's, that's going to be the tough stuff, is how do we continue to, um, how do we not take the bait and focus on, like, the craziness over here, and really focus on, I think, to the point everyone's made, people in America who are depending on government to be there for them. How, how does one respond to that? I mean, if... if You've got, you have to, you actually have to declare war on it, and you have to, I mean, you have to completely shine a light on everything that's happening, and unfortunately, that's just what I think is going to happen, right? I mean, Doreen, you've been doing this, it's like, it's just no longer, it's not going to be about bills, it's about saying what is happening to real people in this country and lifting up their stories, and so when you begin to take away birth control for 57 million people in this country, which Tom Price would like to do, when you take away the right to get uh, information about abortion, we're not going to be able to win that because he's in charge, but we can absolutely create the biggest groundswell movement ever seen on, on rights uh, to reproductive health care in America, and that's what our job is right now. Uh, to me, it's, it has to be, it's going to have to be calling it out as, a well, as well as trying to win every, everything we can. Um, I just think the thing is folks are going to get, I mean, I don't know what y'all are saying, so, you know, pe people get tired, and you're like, there are only so many times you can call Congress. Right. And, um, but that's why I think we also have to say when it, when it works. So when, you know, when Donald Trump was elected and when Paul Ryan came out and said, 
by January 27th, they were going to have it. They were going to repeal Obamacare. They were going to defund Planned Parenthood. It was going to be on the president's desk. Boom. Okay, well, I don't know, what is today? September something or other? And that bill, hasn't, that bill has not passed, and it has not been on Donald Trump's desk, right? And, um, and, it's, and again, I know everything in about healthcare, but it's like, that's, you gotta call a win a win. And it didn't ha- it, it's not like it didn't happen because they changed their mind. It didn't happen because thousands and thousands of people rose up and called members of Congress and went to Washington, D.C. and wore their pink pussy hats to uh, town hall meetings, and, and that is, so to me, we also have to be able to tell the story of what it means to organize and actually win, even if we're not always going to win. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we sort of already talked about this a little bit, but I kind of want to hone in it, on in it, in on in it, I don't know, um, <laughs> specifically, which is um, whether it's four years from now uh, in 2021 or eight years from now uh, in, uh, I don't know what year that is. Um, regardless of whether it's four or eight years, there's going to be an after-Trump period. Um, there's going to be... A few weeks, could be. Right, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully shorter than four It's going to be a post-Trump. So, and this question is for you, DeRay. In that after-Trump moment, the task will be, it'll be recovering, it'll be improving, it'll be building something anew. Um, so what, for you, does that look like? What does that work look like then? What, what are the beginnings of that work now? Um, to begin laying the groundwork for that inevitability, uh, and what, did, what, did, what advice do you have for people who, other people who are thinking towards the future? Like, when when this all passes, uh, what do we do, and how do we begin to get there? Yeah, so uh, so closest to me are issues of mass incarceration and police. Like, uh, we can live in a world where the police don't kill people. I believe that we can live in a world where we don't lock people up and put people in cages as a as a matter of what we call rehabilitation. That's not real. Like, I believe those things. I'm also mindful that as people of color, we often get pegged as mass incarceration is like our only issue, right? And like we live in a world where more than mass incarceration affects us. So what does it look like that like everybody has access to health care and they can like actually plan their parenthood? That's like a real thing, right? And like people know what power looks like at the local and state level. Like that's a real thing. So in terms of building it, I think that part of it is with the mass incarceration space, it is taking away all the bad stuff. I just went to Angola, which is the biggest prison in the country. It is 18,000 uh, acres. It is, is 28, uh, 28 square miles, 18,000 acres. It used to be four plantations. That is now one. Uh, in the Cook County Jail, the largest jail in the country, it used to house 18,000 people, now houses about 10,000 people, uh, which is wild. And you think about things like bail reform, and people talk about bail reform as this like mythical, magical thing that like can never happen. And then you think like DC got rid of bail a decade ago, Kentucky doesn't have bail, New Jersey got rid of bail, Chicago is ending bail right now. Like we can actually do those things, right? And like you just don't hear about them. So focus on those. And then it's like the quiet trauma. So we're trying to map that stuff. So like Louisiana and Oregon are the only two states that have what we call non-unanimous juries. So it only takes 10 of 12 people in the jury to convict you to life without the possibility of parole. And it's directly linked to integration that when black people started sitting on juries, they didn't want people of color to sit on juries and lower the conviction rate, which is crazy. Which I is guess why I, I had no idea that was the yeah, case. Yeah, no, it's like, a, I'm, I'm like, why are people mad about this? Um, <laughs> it's nuts, right? And it's like, how do we help people, how do we start lifting that stuff up and talking about it in simple language so people can be like, okay, that's crazy, right? And then we have all these people mobilizing people, and I believe that if we shine the light and tell it in a simple way, that people will like get it. And the last thing I'll say is that we believe that systems and structures changes people's behaviors, but... Uh, neighbors change people's minds. And some of this work is about changing people's minds. It's about telling a story differently. So when people ask me, like, when should the police be able to kill people? That's what the police will say to me. Like, well, when should the police be able to kill people? And I say, like, when should the police be able to kill your child, right? And they're like, well, I don't know. And I'm like, well, I don't know either, right? So (laughs) some of this is about, like, you know, it's like, some of this is telling a story in a way that other people can repeat at their dining room tables. Like, how do we talk about healthcare in a way that people can, like, say over and over, and the police over and over, and jails over and over, I think has to be a part of the work of building a better future. Prisanta? You know, I think that we need to continue to um, make sure that the momentum that we are seeing is going in the right direction. And I do believe that the status quo and that politics as usual is not going to be the way to make sure that we are going into the right direction. Um, I think we need new leaders. I think we need to support new leaders to be able to get into a variety of different positions. Um, It's been the honor of my life to serve as the first Latina speaker of the House in Colorado and the only Latina speaker. 
And to me, it is wonderful to be the first and the only Latina speaker in the country right now, but it's also even that much more important that we build pathways for different leaders to be able to get into a variety of roles from the city hall um, all the way up to the White House. And to me, being inclusive isn't just about um, it being politically correct. I truly believe that you get better policy when you have people in positions of power with different backgrounds and experiences. Um, so I'm focusing heavily on recruitment and lifting others um, to be able to get into the right, right places um, to make sure that those voices are at positions in positions of power. Are there structural things that lawmakers can be doing right now or there's elections coming up next year after those elections that help kind of uh, prepare the ground for uh, getting new kinds of leadership? I'm thinking specifically of gerrymandering, right? If you can yeah. do something about gerrymandering in this period than in the after Trump period, you might have an easier time electing people, um, uh, changing policy. Sure. We have a redistricting and reapportionment um, process that's coming up in Colorado, and we'll see this across the country as well. Um, it is so important that we have competitive districts um, where people have a real opportunity to be able to run and to be able to win. Um, I think there's several legal battles that are uh, taking place right now, and I know that different states are looking at um, fair processes, um, and so that is something for people to be paying attention to in your particular state um, as some of those proposals come up to see what will actually lead to a fair and balanced process. And I think it's in addition to that, and we definitely know what gerrymandering has done to the state of Texas. We've had a congressional de delegation that doesn't anywhere, even near, I mean, you know this for sure, as like, it doesn't re reflect um, the, the diversity of this state. Uh, but it's also voting rights, and I know that's something that I feel like has been somewhat sort of this, a little bit esoteric, it's been sort of more of a litigation strategy. I think it has to be a grassroots mobilization strategy. The, the, the denying of people the right to vote uh, for a whole host of reasons, and uh, DeRay's mentioned them, is just, we can't have a true democracy if people actually can't vote, obviously. And then I do think we have to rehabilitate the idea of voting that it actually makes a difference. And that's one of my biggest concerns is that, you know, people um, get so discouraged uh, because their vote didn't count, or they it vote, literally they were denied, denied the right to vote. And I think the mobilization has been fantastic. I mean, as I say, like marching, you know, the women's marches, that was like fantastic. That was one of the most exciting moments for anyone to see, you know, literally millions of people going to town hall meetings, thousands of people calling Congress, but none of that's gonna matter unless we actually get people to go vote and change who's in office. And so we just have to like, and like kind of, um, and, and I think it's, I mean, we talk a lot about, I just on my own little example of just dealing with reproductive health care and trying to explain to men in Congress about how it all works. and. Um, it's just, uh, I mean, I just, I think if we had, if we had more members of Congress who could get pregnant, we would not be fighting about birth control and Planned Parenthood anymore. Yeah. Sure. So, I mean, I want, I want all this. How do we get this stuff? Um, and the, the answer is, look, our political system is not responsive to the people right now. It is not producing policies the majority of people want. Uh, the exciting thing about this incredibly dark time is this silver lining that more people are getting engaged in the process. So Sale said earlier, people feel like they're under attack by this administration or the policies that are coming out every day. Doesn't that, I mean, does that burn them out? We get this question a ton. What we hear is that's not the source of burnout. The source of burnout is you give up your Thursday night, you go to a local meeting, and some guy talks on for like 45 minutes, or there's no agenda, you don't accomplish anything. You feel like you're not doing anything productive. So I think something that is lacking in the progressive space right now is a community-level progressive infrastructure that can mobilize people, but it's not just mobilizing people, it's building up local leadership for the long term. From that flows our progressive policy wins, from that flows our electoral wins. Without that, we're gonna keep on banging our head against the wall wondering, why do we have all these dumb policies that are only responsive to the rich people and corporations? I just add one, two things. One is about the voting is that we also have to figure out how to talk about voting is not the, how to talk about voting is one way to build power, not the only way to build power. And I think about like, you know, I remember being in the White House and Obama was like, DeRay, people need to vote. And I'm like, yeah, I voted my entire life. I still got tear gas, arrested, pepper spray, beat, like all those things happened and voting wasn't the thing that like stopped those from happening, right? And I understand that like standing in the street was super important. Voting is also really important. Like going to city council is really important. And sometimes I've seen a generation sort of above me 
uh, or like the Obama sort of team, the Hillary world, those people talk about voting as like, if you vote, we'll get free. And it's like, I voted my entire life and I still got busted, right? Yeah. So I think that like, that has to be one. And the second is, as we talk about progressive politics, that we, that we never forget sort of equity work as a primary focus. That like, while I'm heartened by the enthusiasm, these people were not with us when we were getting beat in the street in 2014, right? So like, it is... It is easier to mobilize around the, the Muslim ban because it is so obviously wild. And what we would say is like, Mike Brown should be alive too. That was obviously wild to me, right? That like the police kill thousands of people every day, or every year. That's like wild to me, right? So how do we make sure that like when he is gone, that this infrastructure actually and this energy remains around equity work? Because people get real gun shy when it comes to like fighting for marginalized people or poor people. But we often mobilize around some of these easier issues that consensus builds on. Yep. 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 So we are at the Q&A portion. I will remind everyone again that if you would like to ask a question, you either should tweet uh, with the hashtag AskTrib or you can text AskTrib to 512-549-8450. And I have uh, a bunch of questions here that I have not had a chance to look at. So... I'm gonna look through them. Um, actually, here's one that's really good. Uh, Alexis G on Twitter asks, how do each of you practice self-care in the midst of doing resistance work on a daily basis? <laughs> Which is an important question. This stuff, this stuff can take a heavy psychic toll. So um, I'd like to hear what everyone, what everyone does. I don't practice self-care. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, no time for that's all that. Millennial thing. Yeah. <laughs> Mm -hmm. You know, I love to spend time in the mountains when I can, um, but it, it is a challenge. I mean, I think serving in my role, I've been very grateful to be there. I think there's been times, though, without a doubt, that I felt like I had to work twice as hard and be twice as smart to be able um, to be in a leadership position like I'm in. And so I'm, I'm working on the balance issue. So if anybody has uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> some ideas on self-care, I'd love to hear your recommendations. I do. I build on what Ezra said about. I think that there is a fatigue setting in with people that like people have been working and working. And I and I, while I think some of it is like the lack of infrastructure, I do think some of it is like, well, how long can we? How long can everything be like a four alarm fire, right? Like every day, every day, it's like, oh, that's bad. Like that's even worse. You're like, I didn't know it could get worse, you know. And I think that like that takes a lot of energy. And I do think there's a fatigue coming. I would say with myself that like just being alone in a room with four walls normally can like help me reset. That is like a centering thing for me. But I know a lot of people who need to like be around other people, go to beaches, that sort of thing. But for me, it's like four walls and like just me and I'm good. <laughs> yeah, this is a tough question. So I recommend anybody who's setting out a new venture also, well, actually this doesn't work for everybody. My spouse is also our co-executive director and that actually makes it a lot easier. <laughs> it does mean that basically we don't talk about anything but indivisible and work. So that's not really self-care. <laughs> this is a good question. It's making me second guess a lot of my, my thoughts here. So a, a related question comes from Heidi, who's asking on Twitter, uh, when your efforts start to feel futile, when you doubt you're making an impact, what keeps you inspired? What keeps you going? So uh, I think that's a really good question, um, Heidi. And I do think sometimes because this is going to be a long haul, and it has been a long haul for a lot of folks. It's just sometimes you just have to get off the field, and I think that's okay, and we shouldn't, you know, should recognize that. I mean, to me, at least in this last year, as I felt like after the after this election of '45, that it was just going to be, you know, a lot of folks were going to lose health care. Just every day that I can get up, and we can keep the doors open at Planned Parenthood, which is just one my small piece of the world. I know I did the math, and I figured out 8,118 people got health care that day. And those may be people who otherwise wouldn't, wouldn't get health care. And sometimes you just have to like break it down into little pieces like that. And that has really helped me keep going. And I figured that you know, every day we have stopped this administration from rolling back um, the progress we've made on health care. Millions of people have kept their, kept their health care coverage. And that's, that's worth getting up every morning for. Yeah. I think, yeah. And I think for me, it's results. I mean, I think uh, we've had a, a lot of very destructive pieces of legislation that have come forward in Colorado, um, all bills that got a fair hearing, um, but respectfully died. And I think that the times that have been most motivating to me um, is when we're able to thread the needle and find common ground without sacrificing our values, without 
um, without people um, losing their access to health care, um, without doing those things. And I'm still a believer um, that there is more that binds the human experience together than will ever divide us. And so for me, it's always trying to find where are there's those points of common ground um, so that we can do what is right for the people that have elected us. Um, this last legislative session, Governor Hickenlooper said it was the most productive one he's seen during the time he's been governor. And uh, we really worked to try and think about the issues that people deal with every single day. We made uh, major investments in transportation and education, um, but how do we bring people together to drive the right agenda forward? But that said, never being willing, um, not, never not being willing to stand up um, on attacks as it relates to racism, sexism, some of our, our values that we cherish so much. And I don't think that those two goals need to be mutually exclusive. I think we can actually do both. I would say I'm reminded that we aren't born woke, but something wakes us up. And for so many people, it was like a tweet or a Facebook post or a Google Doc or something that like helped them see that they had power that they didn't know they had. When I think about what it means to empower people, it's like none of us can give you power. Like we're not God. What we can do is like help you unlock the power that you already have. And I feel like in three years, I've seen people every day like find the power they didn't think they had. And that gives me hope. I think about local activists here who are like fighting to change the police union contract in Austin, which is not a good contract, by the way, one of the worst in the countries. So it's like you see people like find a part of the pie and they start to fight. And like we've all said, is that that's how we win. It's like these successive little acts like build up to be a ripple effect. And I do think that, like Cecile said, about like claiming that when you get it, somebody asked me recently, like, should we be celebrating the monuments coming down? And it's like, I do think that symbols of hate and power hate. We shouldn't celebrate those things. But when we think about what it means to fight and win, our generation hasn't really seen like a fight start and then get a win. Like we've not really lived through that before. So you think about the monuments for so many people were the first thing that they like marched to City Hall, they're like, this is bad. And then they, the monuments were gone, right? And like you win once and then you start to believe that you can actually do something impactful. A lot of people with healthcare, they like pushed against healthcare. They didn't think they'd ever get it. They called, they marched, they shut down the town halls. And then all of a sudden, like the building get passed. And like that matters to people and that matters to the way the energy flows. So those things keep me hopeful every day. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I would say, I mean, basically at a macro level, look, we are, and Cecilia said this earlier, uh, we are eight months into a unified conservative government, the likes of which we haven't seen in over a decade. They've been promising to repeal the Affordable Care Act for seven years. It was the number one legislative priority. It remains that, and it's not getting done as a result of this crazy thing. People standing up in their communities. That is amazing and inspiring that you are able to change what is possible at the national level through these relatively small acts. And then the other piece is exactly what Jare said. Every time I talk to group leaders or group members who haven't really done politics before, they're nurses or they're school teachers or they're IT technicians, but now they are leading groups. Now they're running for local office or they're fighting on the monuments or they're fighting for Docker, they're fighting for whatever is up right now. And they're motivated by just all of the right things and they're seeing the fruits of their labor. That, it's, that is inspiring. I leave all of those meetings inspired. So, I'm gonna, I'm like, there are a lot of good related questions. I'm just gonna like, go through these related questions. And one of them from Zach on Twitter is, um, you know, if Trump is just the remix to what's been around, how do we ensure that people are still as active once the oppression is not as overt? <laughs> Any, anyone can take it. That's, or a, I'll, that's a good one. Or I'll just point to someone. <laughs> Like I said, I, I am a little worried that like it is, you think about the thing with felons is I ask these people all the time, like what's a felony? And people literally believe that like every felon killed 15 people. That is like how people think about felons. And when you think that there are places across the country where people are in jail because they stole an iPhone, they're in a jail for 20 years because they stole an iPhone. Like people aren't organized. Like, it's not popular to organize around that. Or like things like drug-free school zones, right? They're all bad. Every drug-free school zone is like a nightmare in communities because what it is is like a de facto mandatory minimum. So if you sell like a dime bag with a thousand, within a thousand feet of a school in Tennessee, you automatically get like eight to 12 years. If you sell that same dime bag in rural Tennessee, you get like, I don't know, a number of days. That is like a wild thing. So I say all that to say, 
that I think that we'll have to be explicit about calling out like racial organizing and like organizing around equity so that when Trump is gone, like people still focus on it because what the Republicans are very good at is just like flipping the phrase. They, the left, we kill ourselves over like the taglines and like the words. The right will sacrifice everything to keep the ideology. So the KKK to the uh, White Citizens Council to the alt-right is the same idea. They like sacrifice all the words. They'll like they'll swap out the words whenever they want, but they will keep the idea consistent. And sometimes we sort of get in this box where like people aren't reparations have become like a bad word for people, so people just don't even talk about the idea anymore. And you're like, no, we probably should correct for like you know the centuries of inequity, right? Like we probably should do something about that. Like all these black kids that can't read aren't dumb. Like they didn't like it's not like they were just like were idiots. It's what happens when like. You don't come from a legacy of reading. You know, I'm a third generation reader. I'm in the third generation of my family who can read and comprehend text. My great grandmother could sign her name. That is wild, right? And to not name that and correct for that means that we are failing as organizers. And, I, and I, the only way that I can think about how to make sure is that we keep talking about it and we make sure that people who this is not their lived reality have proximity to the issues. Because I'll tell you, I take people to a jail and they see it for the first time and you're like, I get it, right? They're like, people actually don't live in cells like you see on TV. They live in like these rooms as big as this in dorms of like bunk beds with like 400 and 500 people. And you're like, this is, let everybody out. That's what, like when people come out of jail, they're like, let them all out. Cause this is like a wild <laughs> thing, right? And like, how do we make sure that our best organizers like, have real proximity to the issue so this becomes personal for them and they become implicated in it regardless of who's in the White House. Well, and I think it's important, I mean, DeRay, just, I mean, that was beautiful. Um, and I think the thing is, if we're, if we're satisfied with just an electing 45, then we're not fighting for the right things. Right. And because this really is about building a, a country of equity and justice. And I just think it's important to recognize that for some of us, we fought during the Obama administration. This was not like, I mean, you've used some examples yourself. I mean, we had to fight to get birth control covered for women, and it was not easy. And it wasn't because everybody just said, oh, that's a great idea. And now we have 57 million women in this country who are getting birth control at no cost because we fought for it. And finally, folks caved. And so I just think it's really important to remember that we're not fighting about who's in the White House. We're fighting about ideals that transcend, transcend any administration. And um, I think the exciting thing, again, is that we're investing in a whole generation of new organizers. And their, their ideals are going to be much higher than even those of us on this, uh, on this, on this stage. And that, to me, is what's going to make a difference beyond the this, this administration. Ezra, you had your hand up. Sure. So um, I totally agree with everything that was just said. We talked to uh, this guy, Marshall Gans, a lot. We've been talking to him for a while. He was uh, Cedar Chavez's organizing director for a couple of decades, and now he's a professor of social change. But he distinguishes between organizing and mobilizing, where mobilizing is what a traditional campaign does. You get a group of people to accomplish a thing. You get them to vote for the ballot initiative, or you get them to vote for the candidate, and then afterwards, the energy dissipates. And that, that's all well and good for the campaign. If you get your ballot initiative done, or you get your policy passed to your candidate elected, that's fine. It's fine for the energy to dissipate. Organizing is much different. It's about building up local power so that you can mobilize for individual actions. But the importance of, of organizing uh, as distinct from mobilizing is it's more permanent. Uh, for us, the unit of activism is not the individual because individual activism wanes. People get new jobs, they have kids, they move. And that's fine, that's natural. Your activism might wane, but if you have a group that is building up local power on a regular basis, when a local leader drops off, somebody else is there to pop up. So it's not just all about Trump or when this is over or when next elections are over, but you actually have folks who are continually investing in their own communities and in the political structure. So sort of on that, that topic of, of local infrastructure, uh, Sarah on Twitter asks um, exactly that. There have been multiple mentions of grassroots infrastructure. What can local folks do to build it if it doesn't exist uh, or if it doesn't seem to exist in their area? Well, I think the amazing thing is everywhere I go now, and I'm sure it's true for the rest of folks here, is that people are just self-organizing. And like my, my mantra is like, don't wait for instructions. This is not a time that someone's going to have the perfect idea. And I remember after, of course, after the election, and people would come up to me with these like stricken look, like saying like, what, what should I do? As if somehow there was like one thing we could do and take it all away. And the truth is it's not. It's going to be a number of things. I, like I was just in Paul Ryan's district we have three Planned Parenthood health centers in Paul Ryan's district, and they're all at the risk of shutting down as a result of this bill. And the, the women there who are patients were saying, like, where are we supposed to go? So in fact, they had organized, I was in Kenosha, Wisconsin, they've organized 
forward Kenosha, and they have like 1,300 members, and they're now running for office, right? So I think it's like everywhere, yeah, like, let's work for Kenosha. Like, and I, I just think that's, um, I really think that is the thing, is don't wait, you really have to just do what you can do. And I, I mean, I think, Ray, your point is right. Who knows what's the final thing that's going to tip the balance on any one of these issues? But we can't wait till we figure that out. And it's it, it. And who knows what it was that took John McCain over the, you know, over the line to vote against this healthcare bill. But those are the kinds of things we can't know. We just have to. I really do think we have to keep moving. Dante, do you have any? I think uh, pick your passion. Um, because it's so easy to fight for so many different issues and um, picking your passion can be very, very helpful to focusing in on what you want to accomplish. And I have to give a plug for some of the state legislators and local leaders at the city level. That, you know, get involved with a campaign with somebody who you believe is going to fight for the right values. Um, a lot of the races that we uh, work on, not only in Colorado, but across the country, you know, it's a couple hundred votes. It's 50 votes that sometimes can make a big difference in terms of who has power and who does not. And so getting involved, making the calls, you know, knocking on doors, organizing your community, um, you can actually make a really big difference. When we think about the Black Lives Matter movement, this broad sort of movement that has spawned over the past three years is that people look back at Ferguson and it's interesting, people forget that we were in the street for 400 days at the beginning. People forget that it was illegal to stand still in, in August, September, and October, that if we stood still for more than five seconds, we were immediately arrested. And I say that because we were able to sustain being in the street for so long without there being like an organization that like made all the decisions and whatever. There was like this infrastructure that emerged and like I was a tweeter, there were live streamers, there was a bail fund and we like figured out how to coexist because we had a common goal, but it didn't require like a traditional organization in the way that people think about organizations. And I say that because I think that we're in this space in the organizing work where the internet might be my chapter, right? Like where like the internet actually becomes a way to build power and to build connection that doesn't necessarily require like in person as much as it used to. And I think that we've seen so many people actually like find a home on the internet to organize in a way that just didn't exist before. And I don't think that'll ever replace the in-person organizing. I think there will always be something about that, but it took our bodies being in the middle of the street, that like it wasn't enough for us to just tweet about how crazy the police were. Like we had to actually show up, but there were so many other people who did so much work that you never saw and it didn't require their body to be there in that moment. And I think that this is a moment where we can actually build power differently. When we think about power as the ability to influence the decision-making process, and we think about politics as the decision-making process, it's like helping people understand that they can interact in both and that we can actually change the way that people do it. Uh, Dere, Dere said this earlier. No, this, the movement so far has been made up of folks who just stood up and did it. Uh, that is what has been driving this. So if you are waiting for somebody to come over to you and say, this is actually a crisis, stand up, it's not gonna happen probably. It's been made by volunteers, people who volunteer themselves. Uh, you know, there are an average of 13 indivisible groups in every single congressional district in the country. I guarantee you, if you type in your zip code, you will find one nearby, or you'll find a Planned Parenthood chapter, or you'll find somebody else who's resisting. You can plug into this, but if you've asked yourself what you would have done in, in historical fights for justice and the civil rights or the rights for voting or anything else, the answer is what you're doing right now. So if the question is, how do I get involved? The answer is, you just get involved. That's what is making this work right now. We have time for one last question, and I'm just going to pull together a bunch of different questions around the same topic, and that is uh, basically what are, the, what are the limits of resistance? And a lot of people have asked about uh, Antifa, Antifa, I don't really know what the correct pronunciation is, um, but a lot of people have asked about that and sort of uh, there's resistance and there's confrontation, but what are, what are the limits to that and what should the limits be? Um, should we be willing to, uh, you know, punch a Nazi, uh, or is that going too far? That's like a, that's a, <laughs> so I, mean, I will that's, say that's indivisible. Really heavy last yeah, question. Indivisible is explicitly nonviolent. In fact, to form an indivisible group, you have to say you are practicing nonviolence. Uh, so we haven't had any examples of indivisible groups going out to communities and and getting violent, if we did, there would be a problem. They would be removed from the group. That said, you know, uh, I think it's, it's hard for me to say to somebody else what their lived experience in this country is and what the appropriate way to respond is. So uh, you couldn't be an indivisible group and practice violence, but um, I, the, the fact of the matter is 
There are a lot of folks who are under threat every single day in this country, and far be it from me to say uh, that is um, uh, that you've got to follow my way of resisting. Yeah. I think that. Um I think that there's some people who believe that the only way that you can build power is like, I think that there's a way for you to make change without necessarily being in a chapter of anything, right? That there's some people who will never sit in the basement of a church on Wednesdays, like their life isn't configured like that, but they want to they wanna make a difference. And how do we like build space for them? And I think that there is a part of the organizing community that hasn't like embraced it, that, that like people want to engage differently. So that's one. The second is I think that people, uh, some people are more interested in fighting than winning. That like when the battle is not like battle royale, they like don't feel like they have a home anymore. I think it's one of the reasons why we spend 99% of anything we ever do talking about what the problem is and barely 1% even theorizing about what solutions could look like, about like imagining. Like organizing groups don't spend time imagining often because people are so focused on fighting. Like people's identity becomes rooted in battle sometimes. And I've seen that happen in three years and that they get addicted to like what that looks like, whether it is like visibility or fame. And I get it because part of being marginalized means that you live on the margin, right? And on the margin, you are unheard and unseen. So in moments like this, people who are traditionally unheard and unseen get seen and heard for the first time. And people can get more addicted to that than being free. I will say on this question of violence, it is, you know, I don't have to condone it to understand it, right? Like, I, I get it. And the fact that we call for justice and not revenge is a testament to the souls of black folk and marginalized people, right? That, like, I'm, I'm continuously, like, impressed with people's call for justice in moments when you have the right to call for something so different. So I don't, I get that, like, Part of building a coalition means that we agree on the same world, that we that we like agree on a world of equity and justice. But it also means that we we might think about a path getting there like very differently. And I know that the multitude of tactics is actually what makes us strong. I think we are now officially out of time. Uh, so thank you to the panelists. <laughs> Thank you for coming. 